Chapter 15 Tomorrow's Yesterdays Evan quietly made his way to Jimmy's guesthouse as the sun peeked over the hills. Once inside, he realized there was no way he was going to sleep. After that experience, who could? Winston Churchill had once said, Nothing in life is more exhilarating than to be shot at with no result. You couldn't have been more right, Mr. Churchill. Evan took a breath. First, he'd been shot at, and today would be his first full day working for Frank Capra. Frank Capra! Evan suddenly realized that his goal of directing a great film before he turned 27 was being partially realized. He'd be working with one of the greatest directors in motion picture history. Evan was flying as close to the sun as he ever could. The only trick was to make sure the wax on his feathers didn't melt. Of course, Evan still had Strickler to deal with. The man had tried and would try again as soon as he discovered he'd failed. Until then, Evan had to make his way through this experience as carefully as possible. He might be here for the rest of his life, which struck Evan as both a good and bad thing. In some ways, it felt like a Vietnam War-like decision. Bad if you stay, bad if you go. Lose-lose. Aside from the threat of Strickler, being with these people and Dorothy was worth never going back. And to what? Connor Alcott? He'd have no job as an editor. Connor would see to that. Connor was disrespected, but like Harvey Weinstein, in Hollywood, you can be disrespected and feared. Plus, when a guy like that had money, people tended to tiptoe and acquiesce. Evan considered. Stay here, maybe get killed. Go back to 2021 and die slowly, his dreams never coming true. Probably meet someone like Gwen and pretend to be someone he wasn't just to get by. Either way, his life would be difficult. Evan paced a while, then finally changed clothes, trying to make himself as presentable as he could. He needed a fresh wardrobe, that was for sure. Two outfits, one from 2021 that was really starting to smell, and one on loan from the RKO costume department, was all he had. Evan glanced at his watch. 6.45. He could not be late on his first day for Frank Capra. Evan silently prayed Coop would be on time. Thinking of Coop, Evan made sure to carry that device he had given him everywhere from now on. Evan wondered if the batteries would ever run down on the thing. But then again, considering it was made with Tesla technology, the chances of that seemed slim. Evan heard Jimmy in the kitchen, which was nice. He loved the guy. Evan peeked out the window and spotted the star sitting at the kitchen table in his robe and slippers, reading the paper. Evan would skip coming in to make small talk. Jimmy loved to chat, and he had no time for that. He slipped out past the kitchen unseen and slinked to the front yard to wait for Coop. Evan waited a long time. Seven o'clock passed, then 7.25, then 7.30. No Coop and no cell phone to call him to see what was up. 7.45. Now 
he was going to be late. Damn it. Evan could only make a good first impression once, and he was blowing it. Coop arrived at 7.50, apologetic. The traffic was absurd. Construction everywhere. It seemed to be a Los Angeles constant. They made their way to Paramount RKO, encountering more construction, traffic jams, and horns blowing constantly. Evan looked at his watch, panicking. It was already 8.40, and they were only at Sunset Boulevard and La Brea. Evan, I deeply apologize for being late. I did not know there was so much road construction scheduled today. I don't recall the road being in need of repair, but I suppose someone felt it was necessary. He didn't need to apologize. Evan knew it wasn't his fault. His nerves were already on edge from his nighttime excursion, and now the adrenaline rush of almost being Shanghai to East Africa was wearing off. Evan vowed to drink as much coffee as he could to get through the day. Also, I was up the entire evening working on our problem. I need you to know we might very well be stuck here, Coop said darkly. I might not be able to get us back. Evan just nodded silently. Stay or go. Either way, he had a hard road ahead of him. And right now, that road seemed rockier because he was late. Coop dropped him off at the Liberty Films offices. He hurried, out of breath, sweaty, hair askew, and made his way into Capra's office as quietly as he could. According to his watch, it was 8.49. Not only was he several minutes late, but he also looked terrible, like a guy who'd been up all night. An attractive young lady behind the front desk clocked Evan immediately. Excuse me, sir. May I ask your name and what business you have here? Evan couldn't guess her age, based on all the makeup the woman wore. She could have been anywhere between her thirties and middle age, and judging by the piercing look she gave him over her glasses and her commanding voice, she could have easily quit her day job and enlisted as a drill sergeant. Yes, I'm Evan West. I'm... Evan stammered, intimidated by the commanding woman. Yes, the editor. Her rock-hard demeanor softened, and he relaxed. Nice to meet you. Vera Stone, Mr. Capra's assistant. I have some paperwork you need to fill out for us in the union before you begin work today. Vera handed him a clipboard and stack of papers with a fountain pen attached. Evan took what was handed to him dubiously. Could I fill this out later? I'm already late. I've noticed. And no, this must be done before you do any work. Questions? Evan sighed and sat down examining the paper attached to the clipboard. He saw the line for the applicant's social security number. Uh-oh. His was from the 21st century. It would never jibe with the SS numbers from 1946. He'd just have to take his chances. He filled out the form, then signed it and handed it back to Master Sergeant Stone. She took the clipboard and motioned toward Frank Capra's office. He doesn't like it when people are late, she warned. Evan could hear him shouting on the phone behind his closed door. He prefers three short raps on the door, then open it a crack. He doesn't like shouting, come in, through a closed door. Good luck. Evan swallowed, then followed her instructions carefully. 
knocking three times on Capra's door before opening it just a crack. He heard Capra slam down the phone. Then he threw a script down on his desk with a loud crack. Evan poked his head in. Good morning, Mr. Capra, he said, mouse-like. Capra looked to him, frowning. You're late, West. We're off to a bad start, but come in. Capra looked to an assistant standing next to his desk, a woman in her late twenties, wearing black glasses with her hair bound up in a twirly do that vaguely resembled an upside-down ice cream cone. Well, Frank asked. Well? The poor girl repeated, looking in Evan's direction. Oh, sorry, Mr. Capra, Evan said, picking up the slack. There was a lot of construction on Sunset today. I don't care, West. We've got bigger problems right now, he muttered. Capra picked up the script, glanced through it once more, then slammed it down on the desk again. The girl beside him jumped at the angry sound. I have no choice, he said dismally. A terrific scene, and I'll have to shoot the damned thing on a sound stage. Cheat it all to hell. It'll look phony as heck, but there it is. Evan cleared his throat and spoke up. Mr. Capra, may I ask which scene? The prom night dance sequence scene. I need a floor that opens with a swimming pool below it. Now where the hell can I find one of those? Answer, nowhere. He slammed his fist into the script just for good measure before glaring up at Evan. You might want to read the script if you're going to help edit this madness. I know it by heart, Evan blurted out, catching himself. Do you? Capra said, somewhat amused. The assistant raised her hand. Capra snapped. What, Sally? Spit it out. You're not in high school. You don't have to raise your hand. Might we shoot the prom scene at night up by Lake Hollywood? Dudley, another assistant Evan did not notice at first, a prematurely bald 35-year-old man on a chair behind Capra's right side, chirped in. Right. And when things get exciting, everyone jumps in the lake with Jimmy and Donna. Same effect. Just no pool. And Mr. Strickler will certainly like the budgetary aspects of not building a pool on a soundstage. Sally piped in, smiling. Capra's face turned two different shades of purple as he roared. I don't give a damn what that pencil-pushing dilettante would like. Don't ever mention that bastard's name in a creative meeting again. Sally looked like she was about to cry. No. We need a platform that opens over a damned pool, growled Capra. Not a lake, not a river, not the bloody Pacific Ocean, a pool. Evan stepped forward, raising his hand, even though Sally had just been chided for that action. I, uh, I know where you can get one of those, he interjected quietly. You jerk in my chain, West. Capra said in a deadly voice. No, sir, it's the Beverly Hills High School. They have one, right in the gymnasium. I remember reading about that, um, someplace. The pool, I mean, he corrected himself on the fly. You sure about this, West? Capra said, 
his tone lightening. Damn sure, sir, he said. Sorry, I meant Scout's honor. Um, yes. Capra glanced at Dudley and Sally. Well, don't just stand there. Go out and make some calls. I want that damn gymnasium with the pool. The two assistants fled the room as if the devil were chasing them. Capra looked at Evan, grinning. I took you on as a favor to Jimmy, but that's the second time you've been useful, kid. I like that. Next time, be on time, or there will be no next time. It'll look great. The pool is exactly what you're looking for, Mr. Capra, Evan insisted, relieved that the tense moment had passed. Let's go take a look at some of those rushes you'll be helping on, he said, rising and clapping a hand on Evan's shoulder. Evan and Capra walked to the front door as it opened, and there stood Arthur J. Strickler in all his glory. His head was buried in papers. Capra, we have to talk. Strickler looked up and saw Evan. His face blanched. Good morning, Mr. Strickler, Evan said cheerfully. Strickler merely stared, frozen. What the hell is it, Strickler? Capra wasted no time. We have too many porta potties on set for your budget? Um, no, Strickler muttered, recovering from the shock of seeing Evan, who he must have figured was either dead or in the middle of the Pacific by now. My new assistant editor. Evan West. Capra indicated Evan. A distinct pleasure, Strickler hissed, eyes narrowed. Likewise, sir, Evan said. New boy on the block, Strickler added, lifting his eyebrows and staring pointedly at West. Yep, like a new ship ready for sea, Evan said, enjoying himself. Sorry for the maritime comparison, but I have a yen for all things nautical. Evan stared hard at Strickler, smirking a little. Quite so, Strickler parried, then looked to Capra. Do you have a minute, Frank? Later, Arthur, Capra said, waving him off. I've got a picture to cut. Strickler was left there, standing alone a combination of rage and confusion on his face. He added two and two, but it came up five. Nothing made sense to him right now. Finally, Strickler returned to his office upstairs in the RKO building. He sat at his desk, reflecting a minute after looking around his environment. The big one-sheets of new releases and the gleam in these offices didn't come naturally to Strickler. He had fallen into this profession after his construction company went broke during the depths of the Great Depression. He stared at the gleaming wood of his desk, the surface so shining and smooth it reflected his weary scowl back at him. He had lost it all, despite putting everything he had into Strickler Flannery Construction. His entire soul had been poured into a company that in 1926 alone built over 100 low-cost homes in Baldwin Hills, 12 doctor's offices, and the Ocean Park Hotel in Santa Monica. He'd been living high, paid good wages to his workers, 
and never doubted his business partner, Pete Flannery. But he should have, and then should have murdered the man earlier than he had. Strickler stood up, went to his cabinet, and poured a gin straight up, no ice, no mixer. He thought back to Pete Flannery. The man was a swindler, a man whose moral compass was broken, if he ever even had one. Strickler met Pete in the service, both having served in France during the Great War. Both were Marines and had seen their share of combat. Those experiences never left Strickler. He never forgot or forgave. Before the war, Strickler was a man who never paid religion any mind. But after he got back stateside, it became all he could think about. God had both exalted and betrayed him. God had allowed Strickler to survive. Yes, he had done that, and for God's mercy, Strickler was grateful. But surveying the horror of battle, the anguished howl of violent death, made Strickler angry with God for allowing it all to happen. His mind went back to the faces of the dead, mouths hanging open and filled with flies, eyes sometimes staring into nothing, sometimes closed forever. Strickler cursed the god who gifted him life and cursed the optimism, so brutally crushed from the dead. He hated the world and the god that made it. There was no love to be found in Arthur J. Strickler from that day forward. Strickler picked up a copy of Frank Capra's script for The Greatest Gift. He stared at the cover, finishing off his straight gin in one melancholy gulp. There was nothing about life that was great, nor was it a gift. More like a curse, and Arthur Strickler would do anything in his power to remind the world of that. The only people who seemed to enjoy it were the stupid and gullible. For the next few hours, Evan felt like he had died and gone to heaven. He huddled in a hot room about the size of his apartment living room with Frank and his editor, a very competent, good-natured man named Bill Hornbeck. Bill and Frank apparently went back a ways. Bill had edited Frank's World War II Why We Fight series of films. Evan marveled at the way Bill and Frank worked in sync finding a few frames to cut here and there, storing trims, and asking Evan to label everything. Evan had done all this before, but on Avid, a virtual software. But at Liberty Films in 1946, it was all done by hand. 35-millimeter work print cuts and trims were stored in a trim bin and hung like laundry on a clothesline. Each shot, scene, and accompanying sound were kept neatly together. They reviewed the Potter-George Bailey scene, where George begged Potter for help, then studied the near-George suicide scene on the bridge. After that, the scene with George getting news from Mary about a new baby on the way. It was a journey through history. As Evan watched Bill manipulate the ancient upright moviola, slicing film by hand and pasting it together, while Evan stood by with extra cement. Evan was pretty sure it was glue, but they called it cement. They broke for lunch, 
Capra said he had no choice but to speak with Strickler, which gave Evan time to catch a quick catnap in Capra's outer office within an enclave out of sight to anyone entering the place. Master Sergeant Stone had just left for lunch, so he was afforded some welcome quiet and privacy. Evan awoke to Capra roaring from within his office. Get out! You ignominious hack! You damned jawhead piece of card swallow! Get out! The door opened, and a paperweight sailed out the door and smashed into the outside window, just above Vera Stone's neater-than-neat desk. Arthur Strickler emerged and hastily closed the door behind him as yet another crash exploded. Come back again with an idea like that, and I'll shoot you with the forty-five here in my desk, you hear me? I'll shoot you deader than the lapdog from hell that you are. Strickler frowned. He glanced down and thought, then turned to go. Then he paused, eyes locking onto Evans from across the room. Hard day at the office, Mr. Strickler? Evan asked, yawning. Strickler just stared for an instant. Then he walked over, slowly, body tense. He stopped less than a foot from Evan, pulled out a handkerchief, and mopped his brow. Have a hard time getting to work today? Evan frowned. What do you mean? Don't get smart with me, boyo. We both know what's going on. Strickler got in his face. Evan could smell pickles on his breath. Not sure what you're referring to, Evan said with a shrug. But let's suppose you did want to do something, like kidnap and send me somewhere far away. No, you wouldn't do that, would you, Mr. Strickler? That's illegal. Besides, once you've crossed a line like that, there's no turning back. Evan was rather amazed at his own courage at the moment, and his sudden ability to conjure up a movie-like hero line like that on the fly. I'm full of surprises. Strickler's face transformed into an ugly mask of hatred. This was the real Arthur J. Strickler, a man with an evil soul and heart of stone. Strickler seemed to catch himself, morphing quickly back into the grim-faced reaper he appeared to be. A smile cracked his thin lips. Evan knew Strickler. He was simply a better-controlled Connor Alcott, a man without the crippling malady of alcohol clouding his thinking. Unlike Connor, Strickler was calculating and knew when to use his anger. But for just that one moment, he had lost control and dropped the mask he used to get through in society, allowing his soul to come up. It was a phrase Evan had heard his grandfather use once, when referring to a banker he knew who lost his temper and called in a loan from a poor man who was doing his best to pay the bank back and had missed a few payments. The banker had eviscerated the poor guy just to vent his anger and no doubt the banker would do it again to the next soul who had the misfortune of getting in his path, just as Strickler would. Evan braced himself for whatever was about to come. Strickler studied him. I may have underestimated you, West, 
His voice was chillingly quiet. How about this? We put a stop to our hostilities and turn an eye to something more productive. What did you have in mind? Evan asked. Collaboration, he said easily. Something along creative lines. You are, as you say, resourceful. I could use a man like that in my corner. Evan just glanced pointedly at his watch in response. If that phased Strickler, he didn't show it. Think about it. He offered Evan a crisp smile, turned on his heel, military style, and marched out just as Master Sergeant Stone was returning from lunch. She glanced Strickler's way before glancing at Evan. Talking with the big man? Not so much talking as exchanging blows, Evan said, smiling offhandedly as if it meant nothing to him. I think he's a jerk, Vera Stone volunteered. I don't like the way he looks at me either, like I'm prey. The man is a hunter of souls, a destroyer of worlds, Evan intoned darkly. Vera chuckled. Yeah, you got his number. Thing with guys like him, they always assume they're fooling everyone, but the reality is quite the opposite. The door to Capra's office flew open with the director's typical fiery gusto. Capra stepped out and glanced at Evan. Let's go, West. Back into the trenches we go to fight on. Stone, get me those contracts when you can, if you please. Coming, boss. Vera saluted. Evan watched her go. Master Sergeant Stone, indeed. Capra and Evan headed back to the editing building and examined the existing footage with Bill. Evan marveled, as he always did, at the scene where Jimmy and Donna were enjoying their time together. Post-swimming pool prom party, lounging in robes and sweat clothes and singing, Buffalo Gals, Won't You Come Out Tonight? The scene ended when George was pulled away by Uncle Billy, who informed George that his dad had died. Evan glanced at Capra, who stood next to him, eyes intent on the footage. Capra leaned in to Bill, who was huddled between Evan and Capra. So, this too grim? Capra asked the editor. It's dark, Frank, but the scene before has to be a happy one. It'll take the edge off. Evan nodded. Bill knew his stuff. The swimming pool sequence will be funny. No, hilarious. Bill continued. How do we do that? I'll tell you how. Jimmy and Donna will fall into the pool after the doors slide open, thanks to our two pranksters. Then the rest of the kids just go ape and do the same. They jump in and splash to hell and back. Then we're out of it. Slow dissolve to buffalo gals. Now that is what I call cinema. Evan stepped forward, fighting the urge to speak up. Capra picked up on it and eyed him. What? he pressed. I mean, that's fine, Mr. Capra, but... Evan hesitated. But what? Capra snapped. I just thought... Thought what? Damn it! Speak up, boy! Well, call me crazy, but wouldn't it be funnier if Jimmy and Donna kept dancing in the pool as if nothing had happened? Evan mimicked their dance, 
the Charleston, a mindless two-step. Capra didn't say a word for a minute. Then suddenly, he burst into a big guffaw. My goodness, West! That's hilarious! It's absolute 100% genius! You should be directing pictures, not editing them! Capra shouted. Evan decided in that moment that if he died on the spot with that compliment firmly locked into his soul, his life would be complete. Thank you, sir, Evan said quietly. Capra picked up his script and scribbled some notes. Okay, West, now let's see you do some splicing for Bill. Lot of work to do. Bill, make him earn his paycheck. I plan to, Bill said, and threw Evan a smile. Evan returned the gesture. The more Evan sized up Bill, the more he liked him. He wasn't the intense introvert most editors were. He looked more like a nice bank president, the kind who didn't call in overdue loans from poor people. Bill, let's go out for a smoke, said Frank. Bill stood and handed the moviola over to Evan. You have the plane, kid. Evan got to work. Bill had marked all of the cuts coming up in the next reel with white grease pencil. Now this was the test of tests. Evan had to splice all those scenes together as Bill had marked them exactly to the frame. Evan took a deep breath and dived in. He found the scenes and the marks and spliced the film together, one cut after the next. At first, the work was slow going, but he built up speed over time. All the old movie technology he had studied was coming back to him. Four sprocket holes to the frame, two on each side. 32 frames per each foot of film, 24 frames a second, 45 feet per minute of film. He had the entire sequence cut together in 25 minutes. Not bad for a guy who had only done this once as a home experiment with some old 35mm he got from a theater going out of business. Bill and Frank returned, both with cups of coffee in hand. Let's run it, Frank commanded, and so Bill hit the power. The scene with Gloria Graham, in all her sexiness, walking across the street as a car came to a screeching halt while Jimmy Stewart watched on flashed by. Evan turned to Capra, waiting for a slew of criticisms. Instead, he merely sighed. Bill patted Evan on the shoulder, showing his support. It's a damn shame they're forcing us into an early release on this, Frank exhaled. I hate editing while I'm still shooting. Feels rushed. Don't worry, Mr. Capra. We'll make it all work for you. Bill said. Frank nodded absently. Evan could not tell him that 75 years into the future, filmmakers shot and edited simultaneously while fighting timetables, studios, and diminishing budgets. It was hard for Evan to be too depressed for Capra. At least the director would have had the blessing of knowing the brilliant future of It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs>